to the Modern Chemistry Podcast with your host, Paul Orange. Hello, and welcome to episode number 12 of the Modern Chemistry Podcast. Today on the show, I talk to Vittorio Saggiomo, and my discussion with Vittorio, I think, can be seen as somewhat of a continuation of the themes that I was discussing with Steve Hilton on episode number 11. With Vittorio, we continue to discuss how technologies such as 3D printing, electronics such as Arduino and the ability to program them, how those technologies combined are useful in not only enabling new scientific discoveries across disciplines such as chemistry and biology, but also how these fundamental enabling technologies inherently increase access to some really high-end applications. Also meaning that labs that are slightly less sophisticated are able to access these applications but also that the barrier to entry from a cost point of view uh, becomes less and less of an issue and you will hear at you know one point Vittorio talking about you know the cost of production of some of his test samples being you know easily under a euro each we also with Vittorio talk a little bit about the environmental impact of science and how institutions and laboratories can make choices there to have a lesser environmental impact and also what it means to get some international experience and exposure as you're developing your scientific career. During the conversation Vittorio also mentions a lamp assay um, and it was an assay that he was developing to detect the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the virus that causes COVID-19. Uh, if you follow Vittorio on social media, or you may have seen this already in the in the popular press, this has been described by a lot of people as the COVID test that works inside an espresso capsule. I suggest you uh, Google that if you haven't found it. I will put some links in the show notes. And speaking of which, Vittorio also shared a number of videos with me of the work he's doing and how in practice for instance, some of the 3D printed structures get turned into then scientific systems that can be studied. I strongly recommend taking a look at some of those as they will probably explain the concept slightly better than we were able to do uh, through the medium of audio discussion only. I strongly would suggest that if you're interested in finding out more about what Vittorio does, uh, start out by following him on Twitter or hook up with him on his uh, LinkedIn page. With that, I shall hand you over to the discussion and I'll just be back at the end to say goodbye. Today on the Modern Chemistry Podcast, I'm delighted to welcome Vittorio Sagiomo. And I've probably pronounced your name wrong after you just told me how to pronounce it. Uh, Vittorio is an assistant professor at the, here we go again, (laughs) Wageningen University in Research in the Netherlands. Vittorio, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me, actually. Um, It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Uh, You were introduced to me by Steve Hilton, who was our guest last time. And I would imagine you and Steve know each other through a a common uh, interest in 3D printing, if not a lot of other techniques. Yes, indeed. Mostly 3D printing, but also Arduino and how to get um, the chemistry field a little bit more into the engineering part and the Mm -hmm. electronics and how to use all of these uh, instruments, new, I would say, instruments which are not really new, but are new for chemists. So we are trying to introduce them um, in the field. This yeah. is why I met Steven. And Vittorio, you were kind enough to share some uh, videos and, and, and uh, indications of, of work you've been doing in the past, which I will put some links to in the show notes. And I do encourage people to to take a look at some of those. But one of the things I think is is kind of interesting when I look at your career history, what you have on LinkedIn, 
and, and look at the kind of work you're doing now is your evolution. So your your degree initially was in uh, chemistry, I believe, and your master's degree was in chemistry. And fast forward to today, and uh, I believe your group is the Bio Nanotechnologies group. Is that yeah. that's right? And certainly, looking at the work you're doing, it's not pure chemistry there's you know biological applications i see you're growing you know muscle fibers and the like so how does how does that all come together you know what's the progression from you know start a starting point in chemistry to that what looks like a really diverse and exciting you know area of research interest today yeah so that's true but uh, sometimes you just need to look back at connect the points once you are at this point so mm-hmm. i cannot really um, forward when i was uh, when i was a master student but i think that now i can safely say that my point of view was going into simplicity so trying to make things more simple and easy and accessible so i started my master thesis in italy and i was i actually still am a synthetic chemist so i was doing a macro cycle that was 13 14 steps Mm-hmm. At that point, say, okay, this is too much. No one is ever going to use it because it's too difficult to make that even if it's curing cancer, I don't know how many people are going to do this. So from that, I moved from, to my postdoc that was in a Marie Curie network because they were using system chemistry. So instead of synthesizing the full microcycle, you synthesize just the building blocks, you put them together and they self-assembly. So it was a, a step more, um, I mean, going into the simplicity. Then I moved to another postdoc in the north of the Netherlands, which was Groningen, and was um, even more simple because instead of using one kind of reaction, you use another kind of reaction that could be um, used at pH 7, uh, normal environment, and so on. And then I moved here because I said, okay, we are still synthesizing all of those things that probably no one will ever use. Mm-hmm. Uh, say it honestly it's uh, it's nice i love synthetic chemistry but i want to do something that people can can use and i started here and the first things that i started was okay i want to do microfluidics because i think it's a faster way to synthesize a faster way to make a lab on a chip is a faster way to make um sensor uh, I want to start working in this field. And I faced the problem that making microfluidics was so difficult that I didn't have any experience in that. So I mm-hmm. say, okay. Um, and just by practically by chance, I was also playing with the 3D printer at home and I connected the two things like, I, I can use this for making microfluidics like no one ever did mm-hmm. before. And that started. Um, after that, I, I'm interested in microfabrication and how to make microfabrication inclusive, not only for rich countries, but also mm-hmm. for uh, low and lower income countries so that everyone can use the same instrument and doing the same chemistry, even if it's cheap, but it works. Mm-hmm. So my idea is to open the field. And this is what I try to do with microfluidics, which is working. So the paper was really well accepted, decided people are using it. The video is, uh, I don't know, 75,000 views. It's that, that exploded because it was so easy that um, people in high school are doing it. Um, instead of having uh, high-end uh, facilities, uh, clean rooms, and so on, you can do it at home. Yeah. With yeah. stuff that you buy from Amazon. Yeah, it, it it really is it really is amazing, um, and and I have to admit I've uh, 
since talking to Steve, bought a 3D printer, which I am trying to troubleshoot at the moment. <laughs> Rather than trying to sort of describe some of what you do in microfluidics, I will encourage people to watch the video because it makes it much, it's much easier to see it than it is, I think, to try and describe it verbally. Um, but from my point of view, I'm, I'm not that familiar with what what the advantages are of microfluidics other than you know you're maybe just working in a s smaller volume so what's the attractiveness of working you know in a microfluidic system irrespective of how you make it from a chemistry point of view is that you have a flow so you can control everything way better like uh, Steve told last time you can control way better all the parameters if you are in flow you can control the speed you can control the time of reaction uh, the temperature and so on mm -hmm. this is from synthetic chemist point of view from biology and sensor is that you have microliters of stuff that you want to analyze and you can do that in uh, in the microfluidics if you have one microliter it's difficult to make many analyses using test tubes Mm -hmm. And then you have all the lab on a chip where you have sensor, but are really on the high end. Uh, you can have single molecule um, detection. Uh, you can have PCR, you can have lamp, you can have a lot of different things still on, I don't know, 10 microliters. We did a coil for the NMR where we managed to have, I don't know how many picoliters or nanoliters of material. And you can still make a, a very good NMR with a chip right. machine. And then you have all the organs on a chip, which is extremely interesting because I think that Europe wants to go uh, animal free in 2025, which I think is not possible, mm -hmm. but at least it's, um, it's pushing the research on having um, organ on a chip for mm -hmm. testing drugs um, and check diseases, how they transmit from one organ to the other so the organ on the chip i mean some my my very first experience in the lab was was growing 3d organelles and um for mm -hmm. anybody listening who's not familiar um a cell is not just a cell uh, a muscle cell grown out of context of the structure does not behave like a muscle cell exactly. growing in context yeah. of the uh, of the structure and i think that's one of the things that is really fascinating with your work is actually it's the the shape of these microstructures that allow you to do that that lab on a chip work and have real practical applications afterwards. Um, so I've, you know, I think the one that you shared with me was was looking at muscle fibers. So again, you just go into a little bit of detail, and there's 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 a lot I'd like to unpack about that. But uh, the detail of of what you're preparing to then grow the muscle cells on for just for the audience so they understand this. Yes. So the problem with muscle is that they like to move. So if you try to put it on a Petri dish and on a, on a 2D structure, they will just curl up and, and close because they don't have anything for pulling. You don't have tendons. You don't have anything. So they just curl up and die. Uh, so what uh, this is a collaboration with the university, actually with the hospital in Leiden and hospital in Rotterdam. And the problem that they had was we cannot do this in uh, two dimensional. So for making three dimensional and having those kind of attachment points for the muscle for making force uh, was Velcro. But Velcro, you, I mean, it's completely random. You put a Velcro piece there, you put your muscle cell in between, they start pulling, but you have no idea about the force because... Velcro is it's a random material, so they make it, but you have no idea how many are attached there and so on. So they need to design something better, something that should be three-dimensional and something that should make um, 
some material in which you can calculate the force. And naturally it was PDMS, but we had the 3D printer. So, okay, let's give it a try with the 3D printer. And now we have those beautiful small pillars uh, in PDMS. <laughs> you can calculate the force. The muscle bundle is coming out very well. And practically that was it. <clears throat> but my point was not to go for any uh, really difficult fabrication methods. And we, in the paper, we give three different methods depending on the printer that you have and the capability that you have. So even a standard 200 euro 3D printer is enough for making those structures. Mm. And, and that to me was one of the really interesting things. So uh, I think just for the audience to try and visualize it, um, I I imagine you've got a flat surface with lots of little pillars, as you described it, sticking up out of it, like little columns, and the muscle cells are going to attach to those columns. It's just you can be very precise about uh, where they are. But, but I think one of the things that it's easy to forget about 3D printing and comes through in your work is sometimes you actually print it. 3D printing is quite often thought of, I print the thing I want. You actually have an, a lot of examples of you print a mold, so you print the inverse, right? And that, that has some benefits. And as you said in that paper, you've then got three different ways to create the pillar, either sort of with, if I remember rightly, direct printing of the thing itself or printing a mold that you yep. can reuse different, I guess, benefits to each of those. But yeah. go, sorry, go on. No, no, no. This is a matter of difficulties. So we mm. start with a simple method that you mm. can use with the 200 euro printer. And then we go on. And then for the third one, which the pillar are really small, you can still use a 200 euro printer, but then you need a plasma oven, a coating, a little bit more chemistry there. And I think, you know, what, what you were sort of talking about uh, earlier on, enabling access to, yes, exactly. to, to the science. I think this is a really good indication of, you know, how you could get going, like you say, with, 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 the, with the cheaper materials and the cheaper instruments. Um, and and I, find it, I find it really fascinating. I genuinely find it really fascinating. Are you collaborating with people maybe in, in less well-resourced countries or, or labs who are doing this kind of work as well? With muscle on a chip, not. With microfluidics, collaborating, not. But I receive at least two mails per week asking mm -hmm. um, help for making those microfluidics. Mm -hmm. And those are usually from, well, not usually, I would say 50, 60 percent mm -hmm. uh, from low and lower income countries, mm -hmm. uh, income countries. If we can just sort of like switch over to the microfluidics side a little bit more now. So what you show in the videos is essentially printing the the space where you want the channel to be embedding I, that in. I, I literally print the channel yeah yeah and you embed that in a material and then dissolve the channel away so you're left with yeah. the, with the space and then you're also embedding sensors in that same material right so yeah. applications what what are some of the applications that, that that you see this being used for um and, and where are you driving those applications towards so one of the things that we did and no one else can do with any other methodology is to have a coil around your channel. Because mm -hmm. for the fabrication method that they're using nowadays, you have layer by layer. So you cannot have uh, something around your channel. Mm -hmm. And we use this for heating coil. So for example, we have a, a lamp that can detect DNA or RNA, see COVID. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we did the NMR like this because once you have a coil, that one is a receiver coil for the NMR. Mm -hmm. um, and then we are working a little bit with physicists as well because physicists are also interested in microfluidics because um, 
you have a laminar flow mostly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the two liquids, if you put two liquids in a microfluidic channel, they are not mixing. They are just going line by line. Yeah. And the fact that it's circular, it's better for flow compared to have a squared channel, which you can do nowadays with uh, standard methodology. Mm-hmm. But if you have a cylindrical channel, it's better for flow dynamics. It's more, it's easier to calculate the flow dynamics on that. Yeah, I guess the flow path itself can run into a sensor that's also embedded, right? Yeah, so yeah. we have a colorimetric sensor, which is not super exciting, mm-hmm. um, but we show that you can check the, the, the color of a reaction, for example, or a color of a sensor. Mm-hmm. Um, we use that, actually, we didn't use a color sensor. We use an odimeter for checking uh, bacterial growth in, right. um, in fluids. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that one we use, we didn't publish it. I mean, we are trying to publish it, but uh, it's uh, you can embed a lot of different things because the, the PDMS, so the material that we use for making the microfluidics is super well known, it's transparent, it's glass-like. So you can use most of the sensor, um, electronic sensor embedded in it. Mm-hmm. So so if you if you were to make a, uh, just to give an idea of cost, if you were to make a, uh, uh, just a straight channel embedded in PDMS. Um, what kind of cost is it to? Assuming you already have the three D printer and you know everything else, but you know the, the specific costs of making that is it a couple of euros less? No, it's twenty cents, I guess, or ten really? or twenty cents. Yes, yeah. yeah. So it depends on the material. PDMS is not super cheap, but I think it's sixty euro per kilo, and you need a couple of grams or one gram for making one microfluidics. The material for three D printer is nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the acetone is also nothing and you can reuse it. Mm-hmm. Those are the materials that you're using. So the, the most expensive part is the human uh, that makes... Uh, <laughs> as, as maybe it should be, as maybe... It should be. <laughs> <laughs> this yeah. is uh, yeah. the, the most expensive part. Yeah. Once you've got those devices set up, you start to, I think, see some interesting applications. And one of the applications I think you sent me was a... Um, a detector, right, for CRISPR, uh, an Arduino-based detector for CRISPR-modified DNA, which could be used for, you know, pathogens and the like. Yeah, so this is still a lamp reaction that for people that know it's like a PCR, but easier and sturdier. Mm -hmm. So with PCR, you detect a piece of DNA or RNA, depends Mm -hmm. on the enzyme that you have there. LAMP does the same things, but at at a temperature of 65 degrees. Mm So you need only one temperature, you don't need the cycles. Uh, it works with very dirty samples. You don't need to purify your DNA. So it works on soil, blood, sweat. Mm. It can work on a lot of different um, samples without the need of purification. Mm-hmm. So we did the first time for checking uh, disease on plants because we are in Wageningen. Um, then we did for CRISPR-Cas um, modified um, bacteria, I think at that point was, uh, but practically any DNA that you want to detect, you just design the primer and you can detect it. So we did it also naturally with SARS-CoV-2, uh, coronavirus 2, mm-hmm. and it also works. Um, and it's super cheap. So I think that all the materials cost less than 10 euro and you can have this detector at home. Uh, the problem is that for a pandemic of this size, you cannot produce 10 millions of Arduino uh, in a week. Um, And even if you have that, um, after the pandemic is gone, you create so much e-waste 
that uh, we didn't uh, went through um, that road for producing them mm -hmm. uh, because in our mind it was too much. So re recovering the any electronics embedded in the PDMS afterwards is, yeah. is difficult or impossible? No, it's oh. for what? For uh, for disposal or uh, well, I mean, uh, disposal or reuse. Um, I, I really don't know sort of whether you can whether you can re you know um, you know reclaim the electronics in a working fashion. Hypothetically, you can, mm -hmm. um, but it's not straightforward. So you still need energy for doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, the PDMS is not recyclable at all, so you really need to um, to burn it. Mm -hmm. And the electronics. I mean, it has a, um, a life by, I don't know, a few years, and then people will start throwing it away. Yes. Think about cell phones and computer. I mean, they can work for 10, 20 years, but people are still replacing every year because they have new version. Yeah. So you're still creating waste. Yeah. Well, I, I'm thinking also, you know, sort of things that we look at in our customers, the, the long-term sustainability of some of their processes, yeah. right? So can you reclaim... Uh, I mean, rare earth metals is a good example. You know, can you reclaim them enough? Because the, the, they they become a limiting factor um, when you think about production and stuff. Um, but you mentioned something that I sorry, I, I feel like I can <laughs> go off in a million directions, and I'm trying to keep, get some kind of a, a linear flow going. But um, you mentioned there your university, and I, I came across the at least the mission statement that they have online, which is about exploring the potential of nature to improve the quality of life. So I think that's quite a strong mission statement for uh, an academic institution. I, I'm just kind of wondering, does that really filter down in into your working environment? You know, is is that a driver that you find? Um, I think it is. So the university is really well known for agriculture and food. So it's worldwide, usually one of the first three. Uh, mm -hmm. Sometimes it's the first, sometimes it's the third. But it's really uh, renowned. Um, it's really well known for food and agricultural studies. Mm -hmm. And they are doing a lot on, on this field, both on food, more safe foods, better food, uh, new source of proteins, mm -hmm. all of those research line are going on. And also on the agricultural part, how to have um, a more, uh, a better agricultural um, world, practically, without destroying the environment, um, but also with uh, third world countries, a lot of collaboration there. Mm -hmm. um, there is a lot. So um, also, um, within the university, we try not to use plastic anymore. Um, most of the energy is um, from, I think, wind and sun. Mm -hmm. um, we are uh, cutting down the um, electricity. We have one week in which we stop all the heating in the university, which is very bad for us, <laughs> but apparently they are saving a lot. And it's also for, um, for showing that it, it is possible. Mm -hmm. Every Monday we have a meatless Monday, so you cannot find meat everywhere, uh, anywhere in the university. Um, there are a lot of different things. So I, I, feel, um, I feel this statement from the university, so for, for a better mm -hmm. life. And Wageningen, it's a very small city and it's mostly a uh, university city. So you can see this uh, environment also outside the university. Right. With uh, different shops, but also different communities. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's quite nice. And how do you find... Uh, so you mentioned things like going plastic-free in the lab and, and it, that has 
been a challenge, I think, for a lot of people. And especially as, you know, we've kind of been through this push to single use whether it's consumables, whether it's, you know, equipment uh, or components of equipment for cleanliness, stability, safety, you know, all those reasons. And then all of a sudden you're saying, well, hang on, we've got like now a, a big room full of plastic bits of stuff that we've somehow got to get rid of. How is that kind of going plastic free? How do you find that on a practical basis? So the better question would have been, okay, you want to go plastic free, but then you have a 3D printer in the lab and you're printing plastic like crazy. I wasn't going to go there. I wasn't going to go there. <laughs> <laughs> and this is something I always think about because it's, um, I, I found it absurd that we are uh, printing a lot of things that they don't have any use. And I always think about that. And there are a lot of research going on on um, this kind of plastic that can be recycled, mm -hmm. but you increase the price and it's a price that no one wants to pay. So the government doesn't want to pay, the, the final user doesn't want to pay, they, they don't want to pay more just because it's recycled. And then you still waste energy in recycling the plastic. Mm -hmm. So it's a huge problem. And the things that I'm doing actively, it's um, printing without the need of support material. I don't know if you are familiar with that. Yeah, you are familiar with 3D printer, but for the rest of people, if you are printing an overhang, you are printing plastic in air, which is impossible. So you need to print another structure that you literally throw away after the print. So the design, it's already something that you can do for saving a little bit of plastic. Most of the roll of those plastic are coming in another plastic. And also that one is completely stupid because you are not doing anything with that. You just throw it away. So I'm trying to buy plastic filament, which use um, the roller is made out of uh, cardboard mm -hmm. um, because it's more intelligent, I think. Um, and to print better plastic. So to print PETG that it's more stable than PLA. So I can reuse it multiple times without throwing it away. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you think about laboratories and you think about pipe tips, you think about gloves, you think about a lot of plastic that we are using and there is still no, no solution to that. Hmm. That's true. But one of the things that I, I, you kind of interestingly mentioned there, and it, it was one of the things I want to talk about is you've clearly been doing some experimenting yourself with what materials you can print and how you can dope things into the the 3d printer material and the big example of that is i guess the um dichroic yeah. cup material um, again i'll post links to that but it did make the popular press maybe just talk a little bit about that it's one of these things where i have a like my, my brain doesn't quite compute you know because i always think of plastics as you know they they potentially have all this like you know negative impacts because they're not they're not an inert surface but then clearly they're inert enough. Um, so how, how do you know, what, what are you looking to, to try and do there? Is it just to push the boundaries of what can print or does it feed back to what you were just talking about in terms of you know, more environmentally friendly materials? Uh, both. So when you see about 3D printer, there are two things. So one is we can use the 3D printer for making stuff in the lab. And the other thing is looking at the 3D printer as a chemist and say, okay, there is also a lot of engineering there. I don't care about that, but I care about the material mm -hmm. because as a chemist, I know how the material looks like on, on, on the chemical level, on the molecular level, and I can start modifying it. And this is also extremely interesting for many chemists, uh, mm -hmm. not only polymer, uh, polymer chemists, but also organic chemists. I say, okay, I can modify this. I can make, for example, a structure that it's catalytically active. 
like um, Steven is doing and actually many other people are doing. Um, I can make a structure that it's reactive to UV. I can make a structure that it's embedded with nanoparticles and I can mm-hmm. use either for light uh, sensing or for catalytic um, so there is a lot that we can do as a chemist with material, not only using it, but also making the material ourselves. Mm-hmm. And there are some research on uh, material that can be recycled just by putting it in water, it destroys itself, and then you can uh, get back the monomer. Mm-hmm. The dichroic cup is a specific example. I was uh, curious, was the purpose of that exercise to show the ability to dope the 3d printer material or i didn't quite get was there a, a something else about trying to re i think you were trying to re- recreate a, a glass cup that exhibited similar properties or was it proving was it trying to prove how that original glass cup worked indeed so it started with um serendipity so we found those nanoparticles just by uh, in our teaching lab because one of the students that is the first author of the paper Mm-hmm. Um, miscalculates the, the concentration. So at a certain point, he didn't get the, the red nanoparticles, but mm-hmm. he got those nanoparticles that were dichroic. So instead of throwing them away, saying, oh, the experiment failed, he came back to me and said, hey, look, this is weird. Uh, what's going on here? And then we say, okay, look, you synthesize dichroic nanoparticles in one step, which is quite uh, unique. Let's try to put it in a 3D printer. And for me, as an Italian, so the Lacrosse cup was a Roman cup that show this amazing effect and you have only one cup worldwide that survived but also other i think uh, there are only six fragments worldwide right so they did it 2000 years ago well more than 2000 years ago but they never managed to reproduce it so again that one was completely serendipity and the the information on how to make them it was lost and for me, the interesting things of this research and, and the fun part of this research was to use a new, met- new methodology for making something that was done 2,000 years ago mm-hmm. and having the same effect. So, but understanding on the molecular level that you have the nanoparticles that make the dichroic effect, that you have the plastic that it's coating the nanoparticles, so they are not aggregating, that there, is, there are a lot of small things in, in there that are interesting from scientific point of view. Mm-hmm. From the fun point of view was to use this methodology, the new methodology for making something that was done many, many years ago. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that that shows along with, you know, your example of of using sort of catalytic or or active surfaces, you know, it it starts to show that it, it, you know, 3D printing isn't just about printing unique structures, whether it's scale or specific geometries, it's actually, you can do all that and you can put functionality in there and you can start there you know really think about how your lab equipment comes together and and that's kind of one thing that i was sort of interested in maybe you looking into your crystal ball a bit uh, vittorio is you know if you kind of like think about what we we do today in terms of lab automation there's a lot of automation of um large scale you know milliliter to liter scale to bigger um uh, systems obviously you've mentioned you're working down at you know nanoliter i think you said maybe even smaller scales um you know inherently that that kind of has to be automated right i mean the the, the human is not accurate enough do you think that we're going to continue to see a move towards or or just a a real um growth in working at this small scale 
because the advantages that it brings? Uh, I think that there we have two main problems. One is that chemists are super conservative. So they are used to their flask and they will keep using their flask forever. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, having a shift, I'm happy that uh, I was after uh, Stephen because I think we have sometimes the same problem of trying to convince people to, th- look, this is better. But many people don't want to learn new things because they are used to do the things the way they did 50 years ago. And that's it. So... One is fighting the conservative part of chemistry. And the other one, it's a a standard is missing. And this is something I found frustrating. Mm -hmm. So the connection are different. The microfluidics are different. uh, The syringe pumps are different. So even if you want to say you can do this, but then you need to use my pumps and my microfluidics and my attachment and my tubing. Mm -hmm. It's not really universal. So we need to find a standard. And for finding a standard... Um, it's not something that usually you have um, a top-down approach, say, this is the standard and you need to use it, but it's something that comes from uh, bottom-up. And Mm -hmm. if you want to come from bottom-up with the standard, it either must be cheap or it must be so simple to use. Um, There is the case of uh, VHS against Betamax or all of those Mm -hmm. uh, standards that they emerge. They are not forced down. And this is something that for the microfluidics, uh, in general, it's completely missing. There are uh, many companies also for the automation. You want to have a, a single system that works for everyone, um, either cheap or uh, widespread. Windows and Macintosh, you have plenty of, of, um, of systems that you can look for making a standard. Uh, those are the two things that we are fighting now. I think you also made a very interesting point there about this being driven from the bottom up because microfluidic devices have been around for quite a number of Indeed. years, but tended to be, as you said, I think earlier, you know, you needed very expensive equipment and it was almost like um, uh, computer chip technology in, in a lot yes, of ways in, to, yeah. to, to manufacture these. But now it's, you know, any any chemist can go and have a play. Um, and I, you know, I think it's fair to say it's not just chemists that are conservative. I think a lot of scientists have conservatism built in um, to the way they do their experiments. Um, but similarly, they will play around with big bits of equipment that they're used to and reconfigure them. And this is just sort of same thing, but on a smaller scale almost. <laughs> yes, but uh, at a certain point, we lost the ability of um, doing our own instrument. So Mm -hmm. uh, we started, um, I don't know, chemistry how many years ago, and they were building their own instrument because simply they were not existing. Mm -hmm. At certain points, we stopped, and now we are at this point in which it's conservative, but the problem of conservative is that also we are not teaching enough. Uh, So the new generation of chemists are not learning uh, microfluidics, Mm -hmm. are not learning flow chemistry, and this is something we are actively changing, um, actively doing, so teaching the new generation not to be so conservative but but i think like from what we've spoken about with your career and what what i see it actually I mean, you're a great example of start in one field but kind of stay curious and look at other areas right you, you there probably isn't going to be a degree course that covers all of and even if we taught what you just said that you know microfluidics you know the programming and 3d printing and all if we taught all that today in five years that graduate <laughs> is going to need some other skills so there's there's, there's that Definitely. inherent inherent curiosity and there was this is a little bit of a leap but not a huge leap but about the in, <laughs> inherent curiosity something that i talk about with 
my guests is, is around their experience and their history, which we've touched on for you. But but one of the things that I don't know why it suddenly s- stood out for me is, you know, you've clearly moved around Italian by birth, I presume, and mm-hmm. are now living in the Netherlands, worked in a number of different places. How important do you think that exposure to different cultures is in 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 growing as a as a scientist what does that teach you and and even actually just the fact that you know i would imagine in your lab as well you have people from multiple nationalities you know all working together how how important is that do you think i think it's super important it's the same things of changing field that for me uh, it's super important because mm-hmm. then you broaden your field your broader your imagination and so on mm-hmm. Uh, and for moving around, it's the same. So you are working working in different laboratories with different people. You learn something new, uh, also from the from human side. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's extremely important. Um, and for science, the same thing. So if you change fields, uh, you just broaden your um, your field and also your imagination because you can see things with different eyes than people that are working in the field since forever. I, I agree completely, and I think different approaches to to looking at the world and considering how things work is is, is very important. Indeed. Yeah. Unfortunately, Indeed. the Erasmus, uh, they are now stopping in uh, UK, which is completely uh, insane, I think. Uh, I had actually one one student, one master mm. student that was going to UK, but now he's not coming anymore because he cannot yeah. uh, for doing an internship there. But it's... Uh... Yeah, I'm, uh, <laughs> in, in the interest of neutrality, I don't think we should discuss <laughs> the political situation anywhere. Um, uh, but uh, I... I I think it is it is absolutely a very important point that collaboration in scientific endeavor has never been more important. I mean, what we've yeah. seen in terms of vaccine development for coronavirus, I think yeah. just shows that at a scale that that nobody can deny. And um, I agree, anything that gets in the way of that, whether it's funding, whether it's education, political will, I mean, whatever yeah. it is, 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 is a bad thing. Uh, there's, there's, yeah. there's no two ways about, there's no two ways about that. So Vittorio, I think that's probably all we can cover today. I will strongly encourage anybody listening to this, please do check out at least some of the links um, in, in the um, show notes to some of uh, Vittorio's work. It is super fascinating. Uh, I guess Vittorio, the best place for people to contact you is on Twitter. You're uh, most probably <laughs> a very active Twitter. Again, I'll put um, uh, Vittorio's uh, Twitter handle in the, in the show notes. Anything else you'd like to say? before we wrap up today uh i don't think so i think we have covered most of the things brilliant hey vittorio it was an absolute pleasure and um i really just wish you all the very best with your research it is it is fast it is absolutely fascinating i think it's it's properly cutting edge um and it will have implications for you know the way that we live our life um the type of materials we use and the things that we learn so vittorio thanks very much for your time today thank you Right, well, I hope you all enjoyed that conversation with Vittorio half as much as I did. And I have to definitely say a massive thank you to Vittorio for taking the time to talk to me and also to share all of his insights. And again, a thank you to uh, Steve Hilton for, for making the introduction to Vittorio. And I think there was a really important point that Vittorio made during that discussion, which is that as strange as it may sound, I think most people who work in science understand that it is easy to become a little bit conservative in the way we approach the work that we do. We get used to certain techniques that work and even if we're pushing back the boundaries 
in very challenging and interesting applications we quite often rely on the same tools and technologies and techniques to get that done and change can be a hard thing and i think you know vittorio's comment around remaining consistently and continuously curious about how we can bring different disciplines together and different interests together to help expand the boundary of what is possible. Uh, you know, that, that I think is what makes great scientists great scientists. And um, yeah, I just thought it was a point really, really well made. So with that, I'll wrap up, remind you that there are links to the videos we spoke about and uh, other bits of press uh, related to uh, Vittorio's work in the show notes. You'll also find ways to contact with Victorio on social media and you will also find ways to contact us if you're interested in participating in the show or if you've got any suggestions for anybody that we should interview for future episodes. But with that, I hope you're all staying safe, staying well. I'll catch you next time on the next episode of the Modern Chemistry Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Modern Chemistry Podcast. Our theme music is provided by Kevin McLeod under a Creative Commons license. And if you subscribe to the show, you'll have the next episode drop straight into your podcast feed.